Hey guys, before we get started, I'm going to play a promo for a new true crime podcast called Unjust and Unsolved. Hosted by investigative journalist Maggie Freeling, Unjust and Unsolved highlights the stories of those who have been wrongfully convicted. You won't want to miss out on this podcast, so search for Unjust and Unsolved wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Now, here's a quick preview. My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm an investigative journalist, and I'm excited to tell you about my new podcast from the Obsessed Network called Unjust and Unsolved. Each episode tells the story of a person who I believe has been wrongfully incarcerated. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that there are over 20,000 innocent people locked away in U.S. prisons. When I learned this, I sent letters to those whose stories haunted me. I heard back from almost everyone. They all wanted to be heard. And so on Unjust and Unsolved, I'm doing just that. I speak with those people, their loved ones, advocates, and lawyers, diving deep into the crimes they were convicted of and presenting the evidence that points away from them. And if it wasn't them, then who was it? Help me search for an answer. You can find Unjust and Unsolved and all Obsessed Network podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. The life of a celebrity is often viewed by the public as glamorous, something that you could only dream of achieving. Walking the red carpet, rubbing elbows with A-list celebrities, and hosting lavish parties, all daily occurrences in the life of the rich and famous. This was especially true of Frank Sinatra, singer extraordinaire and mega-celebrity who was connected to a lot of powerful people. Sinatra known as the chairman of the board, had connections to some of the highest seats in government. His fame also led him to be deeply connected with the mob. Sinatra was a huge star. So when his teenage son, Frank Jr., went missing in December of 1963, the world took notice. Did Sinatra's connections with the mob lead to his son's abduction? Or could this have been a self-planned ruse for Junior to get out from under his father's shadow and make a name for himself. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the abduction of Frank Sinatra Jr. case takes us to Los Angeles, California, a town that in the 1960s, as it is today, was bright and lively at all hours of the day. Motorcycles buzzed up and down the streets, performances could be seen in any of the abundant entertainment venues, and the hustle of those trying to make it big could be felt all around. The rolling hills and mountains, picturesque coastlines framing the interstates, and palm trees lining the roads provided an idyllic playground for the many idealistic dreamers hoping to make it big in Tinseltown. 
L.A.'s gorgeous landscape would provide a beautiful backdrop to a dark and sinister plot to abduct the son of arguably the most famous man in show business. On December 8, 1963, music giant Frank Sinatra and his ex-wife Nancy had been anxiously waiting by the phone for a call to come through, one that could save their son's life. 19-year-old Frank Sinatra Jr. had been reported missing hours earlier by a friend who had witnessed the terrifying abduction. After contacting the FBI, Frank Sr. and Nancy were advised that they should be waiting for a call with a ransom demand. Sinatra was prepared to part with millions of dollars in order to get his son back. Finally, after hours of impatiently waiting, the phone rang. Frank Sr. answered and listened nervously as the unknown voice on the other end of the phone made his demand very clear. The caller claimed that they had Frank Jr and they wanted something in exchange for his safe return. The caller told Frank Sr. that more instructions would come later, and that he better be ready to meet their demands quickly, as his son's life depended on it. fact. Over 700 people have been killed by the hands of the police just this year alone. I'm Katherine Sheffield, host of the weekly podcast, A Few Bad Apples. Each week, I unravel true stories of victims whose lives have been affected by bad apple officers of the law. I bring this relevant conversation into the public spotlight because it's a way to provoke change and reform. Not all officers are bad, and in fact, I highlight a positive story at the end of every episode to balance the spectrum. A Few Bad Apples is available wherever you get your podcasts. Frank Sinatra Jr. was born on January 10, 1944, to parents Frank Sinatra and Nancy Barbado Sinatra. Frank Jr., also referred to by Jr. by those closest to him, had an older sister named Nancy and would soon have a younger sister named Tina. The three Sinatra children never had to want for anything. Their lifestyle was the ultimate in luxury. While being the child of such a mega-celebrity is a dream for some, Frank Jr. recalled that he hardly ever saw his father. Frank Sr. was constantly on the road performing or making movies. Because of this, Jr. remembered not having the best relationship with his father. Frank Jr. attended a boarding school during which time he decided that he would follow in his father's footsteps. Music was incredibly important to him, and he eventually decided to pursue a career as a pianist and songwriter. With his famous father's shadow looming over him and bearing the same name, Frank Jr. had a lot to prove if he was to step into the music business. Jr. had a natural talent which he perfected over time while at boarding school. He practiced playing the piano daily and spent much of his time writing songs. In his early teenage years, Frank Jr. was on the fast track to fame and fortune. He frequently performed at local clubs and other venues, and by the time he was 19, Jr. was selected to be the vocalist for Sam Donahue's band. 
He learned the ins and outs of the music business through Duke Ellington, a star composer, pianist, and jazz orchestra leader at the time. Soon, Junior began touring around the States, performing at casinos and other venues. Though he had a lot to live up to, Frank Jr. was steadily making his own name in the music industry. And then, everything changed. On the evening of December 8, 1963, a young man by the name of John Foss called the local police department and reported that 19-year-old Frank Sinatra Jr. had been abducted from his dressing room at Harris Club Lounge in Lake Tahoe, California. Foss identified himself as a friend of Frank Jr. and claimed that two men had come into their dressing room pretending to deliver a package while they were eating dinner. Once they were inside and the door was shut, the two men pulled out guns and pointed them at Frank Jr. Foss claimed that the two men tied him up with medical adhesive tape and then blindfolded him. Apparently, Foss was able to quickly get out of his restraints, but not before hearing Frank Jr. being told to get dressed. Foss said the men then led Jr. out of the room at gunpoint. Authorities were immediately called to the scene. Meanwhile, Frank Sr. and his wife, Nancy, were notified of their son's abduction. The power couple received numerous offers from high-profile friends to help find their son. Frank Sr. was in the middle of filming Robin and the Seven Hoods when he heard the terrifying news. Immediately, he traveled to the location where his son was taken at gunpoint. Frank Sr. booked a room at the Mapes Hotel in downtown Reno and began making a plan to get his son back. Within an hour of hearing of Frank Jr.'s abduction, Attorney General Robert Kennedy reached out to offer assistance. In addition, Frank Sr. was contacted by Sam Giancana, a powerful leader in the world of organized crime, who offered more creative ways to get his son back. Frank Sr., however, opted to go a different route. He declined the offers of help from Kennedy and Giancana gratefully, and instead chose to utilize the FBI to find his son. Roadblocks leading out of Lake Tahoe were quickly set up in an attempt to stop Junior's abductors from escaping the area. Knowing that the most likely possibility was that Junior was abducted in an attempt to collect a ransom, Frank Sr. was advised that he should be waiting for a phone call. During the time he was waiting for the ransom call, Frank Sr. held a press conference during which he publicly offered his son's abductors $1 million in exchange for his safe return. Frank and Nancy then waited to see if that would be enough. After impatiently waiting for 23 hours, the phone rang at the hotel room in which he was staying. Frank Sr. answered the call and at first, he was able to confirm that his son was okay. Then, the abductors began to speak. Although Frank Sr. again offered them a million dollars, the voice on the phone made it clear that this was not up for discussion. The caller gave clear instructions. Frank Sr. was to go to a Chevron station just outside of town on Camden Street to await another phone call, at which time more details would be given. Frank Sr. did as he was instructed and went to the Chevron station. When he arrived, 
he immediately asked the station manager if any phone calls had come in for him. Apparently, the abductors had called a few times just minutes earlier, asking if they could speak to Frank Sinatra. Believing this to be a prank call, the station manager responded, telling the callers they were crazy if they thought he was in charge of directing calls to Mr. Sinatra. Although Frank Jr.'s abduction was major news, the station manager was not aware of the situation. The phone at the station rang once again, and the same voice asked to speak to Frank Sinatra. Sinatra grabbed the phone and asked what they wanted. The voice said, Get together $240,000, and then he gave a new location for Frank Sr. to await another call. Before hanging up, Frank Sr. asked if he could speak with his son, but the call ended abruptly. During the time that Frank Sr. had been waiting for calls and driving around Nevada to speak with his son's abductors, friends and associates of his had raised more than enough money to cover the seemingly low ransom of $240,000. Frank Sr. clearly did not need outside help to raise money for the ransom, but this gesture showed just how loyal people were to him. With the money that had been raised for his son, Frank Sr. made his way to the next service station where he had been instructed to go. This time, directions were given regarding what Frank Sr. should do with the money. Orders were given for him to travel to Southern California to another Chevron station where two buses would be parked side by side. He was to drop the money between the two buses and make sure that no one tried to approach or apprehend the man grabbing the money. If someone did, Frank Sr. was assured that Junior would be harmed. With these new instructions, Frank Sr. booked a chartered flight back to his home in California and began planning the drop-off of the ransom money with authorities. Just as he was told, Frank Sr. had the FBI place the $240,000 in a briefcase. Then, on December 11, 1963, he made his way to the specified location for the drop-off. At this time, Frank Jr. had been held captive for over 50 hours. After the money was delivered as instructed, authorities watched as their perpetrator calmly walked up to the two buses parked beside the Chevron station, grabbed the briefcase full of money, and drove off in his getaway vehicle. It would be a few agonizing hours before there were any new updates on Junior. Eventually, the phone rang again. The voice on the other end of the call told Frank Sr. that his son had been dropped off unharmed at Mulholland and the freeway. Authorities rushed to the area. However, Frank Jr. was nowhere to be seen. While Frank Sr. traveled to the location given to him by his son's captors, Nancy Sinatra stayed home, waiting to hear that Junior had been found safe. Suddenly, Nancy heard a knock at her front door. When she opened the door, an unknown man stood in front of her and explained that he had her son inside the trunk of his car. Ladies, do you want to rock your work-from-home or office look? I highly recommend Beta Brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants. They are the most comfortable work pants I've ever worn, and they're totally office-appropriate. 
Dress pant yoga pants feel like you're wearing your favorite yoga pants, but they are not yoga pants at all. They are sleek and stylish professional pants you can rock at work, at home, or on a date night. They fit really well and don't dig into your sides like other work pants. I've worn my dress pant yoga pants all day and then to dinner with my husband and never once felt like I wanted to unbutton them or adjust them. These pants are so figure flattering and Beta Brand has so many different styles and colors to choose from. New styles are launched weekly. Right now, my listeners can get 25% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash murderish. That's 25% off your first order for a limited time at betabrand.com slash murderish. Find out why women are buying five different pairs of these pants. Go to betabrand.com slash murderish for 25% off. Stamps.com has saved me so much time and money. With Stamps.com, I can do anything that can be done at the post office right from my home office. If you're someone who often ships letters and packages, you've got to get a Stamps.com account. Seriously, save yourself the hassle of waiting in line at a shipping center and print U.S. postage from your home computer. And you can even ship UPS with your Stamps.com account. Here's the kicker. You get $0.05 off of first-class stamps, up to 40% off priority mail, and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. I regularly ship out merch packages to Murderish Patreon subscribers, and doing it with Stamps.com has been a game-changer for me with all the precious time I've gotten back. I mean, now I have more time to argue with people about my true crime theories. Don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. With my promo code MURDERISH, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MURDERISH. That's Stamps.com, enter MURDERISH, Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. The man at Nancy Sinatra's doorstep introduced himself as George C. Jones and then went on to explain the bizarre circumstances that brought him to her home. Jones, who said he was a private security guard, told Nancy that he had seen a man in a top coat wandering alongside the freeway. When he stopped to investigate, the top coat wearing man introduced himself as Frank Sinatra Jr and asked if he could be taken to his mother's house. Not wanting to attract any press attention or be seen by his abductors, Frank Jr. asked if he could ride in the trunk of the car, something he had become accustomed to in the last 54 hours. Jones obliged the strange request, then called his office to tell them to get in touch with authorities. He then began driving to the address Frank Jr. had given him for his mother's house. After speaking with the strange man standing at her door, Nancy was overwhelmed with emotion. She ran to the trunk of the car and embraced her son. Frank Sr. and the authorities arrived at Nancy's house seconds after Jones got there. Frank Jr. apologized to his dad and told his mother not to cry. Frank Sr., only days away from his 46th birthday, told his son that having him back was the greatest birthday present he could have asked for. 
With his son home safe after the terrifying ordeal, Frank Sr. declared that the abductors never made him promise not to go after them once his son was safe. He ordered authorities to find the men who took his son and to make sure they were apprehended. With that, the investigation into the abduction of Frank Sinatra Jr. began in full force. Initially, authorities did not have much information to go on. Before the cash had been given to Junior's abductors, authorities noted the serial number of each bill before they were placed inside of the briefcase. This was done with the intention of tracing any ransom money spent back to the captors. This plan, however, would only be effective once the perpetrators spent the money and the bills got back into circulation. And so, the waiting game began. Unfortunately, Frank Jr. could not offer much help in the investigation, as he said he was blindfolded for the majority of the time. He recalled for authorities that the men who took him were by no means hardened criminals. In fact, Frank Jr. remembered them being quite unorganized and unsure of their actions. Authorities were also unable to gather much information from the Chevron station where the abductors picked up the money. Out of fear that harm would be inflicted on Frank Jr., nobody was close enough to the location to get a detailed description of the men in the car. They were also unable to follow the car to its next location, once again out of fear that Jr. would be hurt. Soon enough, however, authorities would receive a huge break in the case all because of ego. Only two days after Frank Jr. was recovered, a call came in to the FBI. The caller, who claimed to be the brother of one of the abductors, said his brother had bragged to him about abducting Frank Sinatra Jr. Investigators tracked down 42-year-old John Irwin, the brother of the man who called the FBI. Irwin was questioned about the abduction, and soon after, two more men were taken into custody by the FBI. When authorities caught up with Barry Keenan and Joe Amsler, they had over $168,000 of the ransom money still in their possession. The pair were immediately arrested on charges of kidnapping and ransoming. John Irwin was also arrested. It was quickly discovered that the three men not only had connections to each other, but they also had ties to the Sinatra family. Suspect Barry Keenan was born in 1940 and had a relatively normal childhood. His parents were devout Catholics and wanted the best for their son, which began by getting him into the best schools possible. When Keenan was older, both of his parents began drinking heavily which led to their eventual divorce. Keenan attended University High School in Los Angeles, California, which coincidentally was the same school as Frank Jr.'s sister, Nancy Sinatra, attended. In fact, according to Keenan, he and Nancy were acquaintances, and he had been invited over to the Sinatra's house many times. After graduating from University High, Keenan enrolled in UCLA, However, he soon dropped out. Despite dropping out of college, 
Keenan led a relatively successful life after high school. He got involved in real estate and other business ventures, and by the age of 21, he was the youngest member of the Los Angeles Stock Exchange. Keenan was making a lot of money for a 21-year-old, and his life seemed to be on an upward trajectory. At his peak, Keenan was making over $10,000 per month and was happily married. However, this wouldn't last long. In 1961, Keenan's mother, still struggling with alcoholism, attempted suicide. At the same time, Keenan's father was also experiencing major health issues. Feeling obligated to financially support his ailing parents, Keenan stressed over making as much money as he could through his real estate business and stock exchange endeavors. Unfortunately, many of his real estate deals began falling through and a lot of his investments were plummeting, significantly dwindling Keenan's cash flow. To make things worse, in 1961, Keenan was involved in a single vehicle wreck that severely injured his back. Though he recovered from his injury, Keenan found himself addicted to the pain medication Percodol. Soon, he was adding alcohol into his healing process. Now addicted to pills and alcohol, and with no financial safety net to take care of himself or his parents, Keenan found himself in a very dark place. Due to his addictions, his first wife divorced him, which only exasperated his weak mental state. It was at this time that Keenan knew he would need to do something drastic to get back on top. Suspect Joe Amsler attended the same high school as Barry Keenan and Nancy Sinatra. After graduating, Amsler led a simple life. In 1963, he was newly married and working as an abalone driver. He was also an aspiring professional boxer. Suspect John Irwin, 42 at the time he was arrested, worked as a house painter. Irwin was connected to Barry Keenan, as he had dated Keenan's mother. After their arrests, all three men would eventually go on trial for the abduction of Frank Sinatra Jr. Though John Irwin bragged to his brother about being involved in Frank Jr.'s abduction and named two co-conspirators who were found with the ransom money, all three men pleaded not guilty when faced with charges of kidnapping, conspiracy, and ransoming. John Irwin, Barry Keenan, and Joe Amsler went on trial together in February of 1964. They would be tried in federal court with Judge East presiding. The three defendants were represented by attorney Gladys Towles Root, who had a bit of a reputation. Known for her flamboyance in the courtroom, paired with the fact that this was a very high-profile case, everyone knew this was going to be an interesting trial. Root, knowing that at least one of her clients had confessed to partaking in the kidnapping of Frank Jr., knew she had to come up with a creative defense. Her strategy, in part, was to spin the story around in a manner in which some would describe as questionable. In her opening remarks, Root outlined a story that was vastly different from the one Frank Jr. recalled. She alleged that the entire incident was orchestrated by Jr., 
who was a willing participant in his own abduction in an attempt to garner fame and attention on a national stage. Root claimed that Frank Jr. had contacted defendant Barry Keenan, a man who he remembered attended the same school as his older sister, Nancy. She further alleged that Frank Jr. told Keenan of an opportunity. Root told the court that Frank Jr., despising the fact that he would never get out of his father's shadow, created a hoax that included faking his own abduction so he could garner worldwide attention. Gladys Root was vicious in her attack of Frank Jr., as she explained to the court that the only thing her defendants were guilty of was following the orders of Frank Jr. As the trial continued, Root continued to smear Jr.'s name and claimed that he was the mastermind of the entire operation. Root would also use other incredibly creative tactics to help turn the public against the Sinatra family, who were beloved by all. Frank Jr. was called to the stand to recount for the jury what happened in the 54 hours that he was held against his will. He recalled the abduction vividly. He remembered Keenan and Amsler coming into his room, saying that they had a package to deliver. He said that as they made their way into the dressing room, the pair drew their guns, tied up his friend, John Foss, and then turned their attention back to him. Frank Jr. testified that he was in his boxers and a t-shirt, so the pair of men told him to get dressed. After putting on pants and an overcoat, Jr. said that he was blindfolded and escorted out to a car. Once inside the vehicle, the men began making their way to a hideout house that had been prepared in advance. On the road, however, Keenan and Amsler were surprised by the fact that roadblocks were being set up so quickly. They would learn later that it only took a few minutes for John Foss, who they had tied up and left behind, to escape his bonds and notify authorities of the abduction. With no other route available, Keenan drove up to the roadblock. Surprisingly, Keenan was able to get past the roadblocks with Frank Sinatra Jr. in the trunk of his car. After making it past the barriers, the men continued on their way to the hideout house. It was a snowy night, and at one point, Keenan had to stop to put chains on the tires. During this time, Frank Jr. remembered that he was allowed to sit in the back seat for a while, though still bound. Keenan and Amsler drove with Frank Jr. in the trunk from the Harris Casino in Lake Tahoe all the way to Canoga Park in Los Angeles County. In total, the drive covered over 400 miles and took close to eight hours to complete. Junior recounted for the jury that he was in the trunk of the car for the majority of this time. Once they arrived at the hideout house, Frank Jr. met a new man. John Irwin was at the house, waiting for the arrival of Keenan, Amsler, and their victim. The men took their captive inside, where he waited for the remainder of the time. At one point, Frank Jr. was able to speak with his dad and tell him that he was okay. Other than that, it was reported that phone calls were made at payphones away from the house. Frank Jr. testified that he was compliant, sensing that the men who had abducted him had no intention of harming him unless he tried to escape. Once his three captors had stated their ransom demands 
and told the FBI when and where to place the money, Frank Jr. said his thinking shifted and he believed he should at least try to get away. He became worried that after they had their money, his abductors would kill him. He recalled for the jury that Keenan and Amsler were the two men who were designated to pick up the money, leaving him alone with John Irwin. After Keenan and Amsler left, Frank Jr. began talking to Irwin. He told Irwin that since the money was going to be picked up, he should go ahead and let him go. He told Irwin that it's possible that the police were going to follow Keenan and Amsler back to the hideout house and that it would be better for everyone if Irwin let him go and got a head start on escaping the situation. As it turned out, Frank Jr.'s words resonated with his captor. Not wanting to get caught with their captive, Irwin untied him, ordered him to get inside of the trunk of the car, and then drove him out to the intersection of Mulholland and the freeway. Irwin let Frank Jr. out of the car and sped away. Jr. recalled walking carefully, dodging any passing cars, in fear that Keenan and Amsler would come back and see him. He also feared that Irwin would change his mind and come back for him. That was the point at which Frank Jr. ran into the security guard, who would take him back to his mother's house. In her cross-exam of Jr., defense attorney Gladys Root continued cementing her theory that he had orchestrated his own abduction. Root berated Jr. with questions that implied his guilt. She talked about his hatred of his father's fame because it barred him from any great accomplishments. She asked about his struggle to make a name for himself when he bore the same name of his legendary father. She asked him if he was so angry about his relatively low level of fame that he decided to do something dramatic so the entire world would know his name. Frank Jr. admitted that it was difficult creating his own image and popularity when his father was already such a huge celebrity. However, he asserted that he never felt malice towards his father for that. He claimed that he was happy with his musical career success and didn't think he needed to pull a publicity stunt to get more media coverage. To rebut this, Root brought up the amount of money and fame Frank Jr. had earned. Since arriving home safely, Jr. had been offered hundreds of thousands of dollars by book publishers, magazines, and scriptwriters to get exclusive rights to his story. His name was now recognizable worldwide, and most importantly, he was getting booked for shows, interviews, and performances at a much higher rate than before his abduction. Root alleged before the jury that this was exactly the intention of Frank Sinatra Jr. He wanted fame and fortune equivalent to that of his father, but he couldn't achieve it without a dramatic scene. Before letting him off the stand, Root brought up something controversial that Frank Jr. had said prior to trial. She asked him if it was true that he had said he hopes the defendants get away with it. Surprisingly, Frank Jr. admitted that he had said that. With that, Root excused him off the witness stand. All three defendants were called to testify during trial. Each of them said that Frank Jr. had approached them with an outrageous plan to have himself abducted as a publicity stunt. 
They each described the plot that Frank Jr. had allegedly written out and the exact directions that were given to each of them. From the initial abduction to the final ransom call to dropping Frank Jr. off on the side of the road, the three defendants claimed that Frank Jr. had planned every minute of his own abduction. There would be another witness, however, who would counter the theory that Frank Jr. planned his own abduction. Dean Torrance of the band Jan and Dean, known for their hit song at the time, Surf City, was called to testify. Torrance had also gone to University High School and was very close friends with defendant Barry Keenan. After high school, the two stayed close and Keenan, while still in the stock market, was giving Torrance financial advice regarding the money he was making from his music. At the request of the prosecution, Torrance recalled for the jury the day that Keenan approached him with a large white binder in hand. Confused as to the purpose of their meeting, Torrance asked Keenan if everything was okay. He knew that Keenan had recently been down on his luck and was concerned about him. Keenan responded saying that he knew exactly how he was going to make all of his money back. That's when, according to Torrance, Keenan opened up the large white binder and laid out an incredibly detailed plan to abduct Frank Sinatra Jr. Although he was shocked, Torrance told the jury that he in no way thought that Keenan would actually go through with this plan. To him, the plan was so outrageous, he thought Keenan had to be joking. Torrance recounted the details of the plan. He told the jury that Keenan had gone back and forth regarding who he should target. Keenan allegedly told Torrance that he considered abducting Bob Hope's son instead of Frank Sinatra's, but that seemed unpatriotic. Torrance spoke about Keenan's reasoning, saying that since Frank Sinatra had shady ties to the mob, he could handle a few hours of discomfort. After settling on a target, Keenan then explained to Torrance how much he was going to demand in ransom. According to Torrance's testimony, Keenan said that he was only going to ask for $240,000. That is exactly the amount he would need to invest in high-return stocks and restart his real estate business. When asked why he didn't ask for more money, Keenan gave a surprising answer. Torrance said that Keenan pointed to his Catholic faith. Obviously, in Keenan's mind, he would need to atone for the sin of abducting Junior and taking money from Frank Sr. Keenan reasoned that he would need to repay the money once he had built up his fortune once again. It seemed as if he had full intentions of repaying the Sinatra family once he got back on his feet. He didn't want to take more money than he could repay. Torrance testified that Keenan told him he would need some help to carry out this plan. Keenan then said that he would recruit Joe Amsler, a mutual friend, to help in the physical abduction. He would also get his mother's boyfriend, John Irwin, in on the plan. Keenan explained to Torrance that Irwin could sound intimidating on the phone, a skill they would need while making ransom demands. Keenan told Torrance that in order for his plan to work, he was going to need an investment. 
one that he would pay back with interest once the plan worked. Still not thinking that Keenan was serious about his plan, but worried that his friend needed some financial help, Torrance gave Keenan $500 and went on his way. He thought nothing more of the plot after that point. It wasn't until Frank Jr. went missing that Torrance realized Keenan was serious. Torrance's testimony laid out for the jury an intensely premeditated plot that countered everything the defense was claiming about Jr. planning the whole thing himself. The jury deliberated on everything they'd heard over the four-week trial and found Barry Keenan, Joe Amsler, and John Irwin guilty of kidnapping, conspiracy, and ransoming. Before sentencing began, all three men were sent for psychological examinations to see if mental health would play a factor in the judge's decision. In between the trial and sentencing, Frank Sinatra Sr. received a letter from a priest who he did not know, begging him to give the three men mercy and forgiveness so that they might receive a lighter sentence. The priest reminded Sinatra that the verdicts ruined the defendant's chance at a normal life outside of prison, and that a shorter sentence would at least allow them more time to normalize. Frank Sr. knew exactly who was behind this curious letter. He knew this was just another ploy from public defender Gladys Root. Sinatra wrote back to the priest, outraged at his request. Frank Sr. defended his son, stating, that Junior would also be unable to lead a normal life after being framed for his own abduction. He wrote to the priest that his son was being blamed by the public for his own abduction, and that his own prospects are dwindling as a result. The letter went on for four pages, eloquently berating the priest for reaching out in such a manner and questioning his motives. Today, that infamous letter is being sold among collectors and fans of Frank Sinatra Sr., typically for a price tag between thirty dollars and $40,000. Suffice it to say, neither Frank Sr. nor Jr. reached out to the defendants or the judge to offer forgiveness or ask for a lighter sentence. After their mental health screenings, the three convicted men were brought in for sentencing. Barry Keenan and Joe Amsler were sentenced to one life term, plus 75 years for their crimes. John Irwin, who was found not guilty in participating in the physical abduction, but was found guilty on all other charges, was sentenced to 75 years. The men were immediately escorted out of the courtroom, and it seemed as though the worst was over for the Sinatra family. Despite the idea that Frank Sinatra Jr. planned his own abduction had been proven untrue in the courtroom, public opinion said otherwise. For the remainder of his life, Frank Jr. lived with a dark cloud of suspicion hovering over him as many people still bought into the theory planted by Gladys Root. After years of being accused of sending innocent men to prison in order to boost his own fame, Frank Jr. decided he would no longer talk about the event. From that point on, he refused to do interviews or talk shows, protecting himself from further trauma. This rumor would follow Frank Jr. around for the remainder of his career until his death in 2016.
Junior's career was successful, but he remarked early on, though his father's name could open any door, having a famous father means that in order to prove yourself, you have to work three times harder. This according to a September 1st, 2009 article in the Wall Street Journal by Nat Hentoff. Frank Jr. was incredibly knowledgeable in big band music and the music business as a whole, making him an excellent performer and an even better businessman. He composed several songs throughout his career and had countless guest performances on TV shows throughout the decades, including Family Guy later in his life. In 1998, Frank Sinatra Jr. married Cynthia McMurray, and together they had one son. Two years later, in January 2000, they were divorced. At the time of his death in 2016, Frank Jr. was still touring. He died unexpectedly in Daytona Beach, Florida, from cardiac arrest. Though this myth has been thoroughly debunked, today, there is still chatter that Frank Sinatra Jr. planned his own abduction. This is thought to be the inspiration for the episode of Hawaii Five-O called Tiger by the Tail. Though Frank Jr. led an incredibly successful life with a flourishing career in the entertainment industry, it seems as though his legacy will always be tainted by the rumors that plagued him. Shockingly, John Irwin was out of prison after just three and a half years, despite being sentenced to serve 75 years. There were a series of appeals that bumped his sentencing down from 75 years to just 12, and then he was released far earlier because of his good behavior. Not much is known about what Irwin's life looked like after prison. However, it is assumed that he stayed in California and went back to painting houses. Joe Amsler was also released after only serving three and a half years. He tried, unsuccessfully, to get back into professional boxing. However, he didn't get very far. His wife left him once he was found guilty and sentenced to prison. Barry Keenan, the plot mastermind, served more time than his two other partners, though not by much. After only four years, Keenan was released on parole. Still addicted to prescription meds and alcohol, Keenan quickly sought out a rehabilitation center where he successfully overcame his addictions. Barry Keenan quickly reestablished himself in the world of real estate. He met with a few investors, and before long, Keenan was once again making a comfortable amount of money. He remarried and divorced twice after being released from prison. Later in his real estate career, the convicted felon began investing in larger properties. He is credited for many successful casinos, resorts, and other large attractions all throughout the Southeast, making millions of dollars along the way. Barry Keenan, who is still alive today, has been very vocal about his abduction of Frank Sinatra Jr. He once said in an interview that he has a hard time connecting himself with those actions. He blames his drug and alcohol addictions for thinking that abducting Jr. was even a plausible idea. In interviews, Keenan has laid out exactly what happened before, during, and after the abduction in great detail. He has given details about the crime that were never released before. 
One detail he told the press was that he initially planned on abducting Frank Jr. on November 22, 1963. However, before he could go through with his plan, he learned that JFK had been shot and killed. Having half of a heart, Keenan figured there shouldn't be any other tragedy on that day, so he halted his plan for the time being. Keenan has mentioned that he feels horrible for going along with the untrue story that Junior came up with the devious plan himself. Keenan has said that he was able to get a fresh start at life after he was released from prison, surprisingly, without much backlash. In contrast, Keenan acknowledged that the false rumors about Frank Jr.'s involvement in his own abduction were something from which Frank Jr. would never be free. Those rumors heavily affected Junior's career and personal life in a negative way, something that Keenan would never be able to make right. None of the three perpetrators served more than four years in prison for abducting a man and holding him captive. The damage to Frank Sinatra Jr.'s reputation, however, lasted a lifetime. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Stick around after the closing music to hear a promo for History Defeats Itself. Make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app. That's History Defeats Itself podcast. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. CrimeCon House Arrest is coming up fast. It's a virtual true crime event that I'm participating in along with so many other true crime podcasters and celebrities. The event takes place on November 21st, 2020, and badges are on sale now. Are on sale now at crimecon.com. Use my promo code MURDERISH20 to get 10% off of any badge at CrimeCon House Arrest and 10% off of a standard badge at CrimeCon 2021 in Austin, Texas. That's MURDERISH20 for 10% off. I'd love to interact with you at both events, so consider buying a badge with my discount and joining the fun. That's crimecon.com, promo code MURDERISH20. I'll include a link in the episode notes. If you can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. There's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber at murderish.com. If you haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group, do it. We have so much fun in there. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, tell a friend about Murderish or write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgman. Stick around after the closing music and podcast promo to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
Are you tired of all the celebrity podcasts out there? Are you getting bored of all the interview shows? Are you pining to listen to three middle-aged men talk about society and history while making you laugh? If you answered yes, then our podcast, History Defeats Itself, is the one for you. And if you answered no, then our podcast is still for you because we need ad dollars to pay for this ad. We're paying for this ad? Each episode, one of us brings a well-researched topic to the group, and the other two have no idea what the topic is going to be until it's revealed on the episode. We'll dive into the past, present, and future in the hopes of determining if we've learned from our past or if we're simply repeating ourselves. How much is this costing us? And if we've learned anything from doing this show, it's that people rarely learn. I just logged into my bank account. Did you guys steal money from me? If you like to learn a little bit and laugh a lot, then check out History Defeats Itself wherever you get your podcasts. Because like we said, these ads don't pay for themselves. No, apparently I'm paying for them according to my bank account. And who bought a jet ski? I'm out of here. I hate you guys. Never wanted to do this podcast anyway. Do you think he saw the RV purchase? No. Be quiet. That's a different account. RV purchase! Sources for this episode include a March 8, 1964 New York Times article at nytimes.com, a 2019 PBS Public Broadcasting Service article by Melanie Albanese at pbs.org, an AP article dated April 9th of 2019 at nydailynews.com a July 30th, 2020 article at wikipedia.org, a November 13th, 2009 A&E Television Network's article at history.com, a 2016 article at people.com by Richard Jerome, a March 17th, 2016 article at themobmuseum.org by Lance Rake, a December 15th, 2017 article by Katie Serena at allthatsinteresting.com, a Nevada Magazine article by Jonathan Shipley at nevadamagazine.com in the November to December 2013 issue, a February 25, 1964 UPI article in the New York Times at nytimes.com, a March 17, 2016 article by Dan Zak and Amy Argetstinger in the Washington Post at washingtonpost.com.